Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast. The Power Your Advice podcast is designed to bring financial advisors new ideas, why those ideas should be considered, and how to implement them into your business. This podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place for advisors to grow their minds and businesses. And now, please join your host, Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. We'd like to welcome back Steve Gresham. He's the managing partner of The Next Chapter, the premier executive community in the financial services industry, and acts as a senior educational advisor to the Alliance for Lifetime Income. Welcome back and happy 2023. Thank you, Doug. After 22, I'll take anything. (laughs) We were talking last week and you pointed out to me that the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was Goblin Mode, which had me quickly scrambling to Google, but then you told me what it was. So what is it and why is it important to the CEOs of our industry? Well, the the strict interpretation of the way uh, Oxford has gone forward with this thing is that it is it's basically what I would call the pandemic spawn. It's a pandemic spawn of people who are indulging in their laziest and most selfish habits. That's the way they wrote it up. So why is it important to CEOs in our industry to like take note of this and really pay attention to it? Well, you know, I think that we are in a situation now where through the pandemic, for lack of a better way to say it, an awful lot of industry and company leaders began to get a different view of where their people could work, how their people should work. And I'm I'm picking my words carefully here because I think what happened was that so many people, employees, had gotten used to the idea that they just had to be there. And so many managers got used to the idea that people just had to be there, that it became just sort of a, a struggle for an awful lot of people with you know, child care uh, responsibilities. Now, actually, uh, some companies have told us they've got many, many, many more people concerned about taking care of aging relatives. It's actually bigger than maternity leave for several of them. And so, it's just sort of the crush of, of day-to-day life was really taxing people, especially if you had a long commute. And, you know, the point that that I made uh, in the note that I, I put together for next chapter is that, when you look at that work, every time when I was at Fidelity, we had a survey of client and client engagement. And we took that very, very seriously. Every year for nine years, we asked the question, if you could change one thing about your job, what would it be? And every single year, it was the exact same thing. And I don't think it's unique to Fidelity. And that one thing was, I would love to be able to work one day a week at home. And I think that was just a relief issue. So employee engagement, quiet quitting, hybrid work are all buzzwords that are circling the landscape, but now it's a new thing or is it just a heightened thing? I think it's the it's probably the frosting on the cake of hybrid work because it's the it's the thing you see. It is the person that takes advantage of unlimited vacation policy at a company and goes away for 3 weeks. 
Uh, it is the person who is supposed to be at a meeting and says, well, and this is a real life example from our one of our next chapter uh, directors. You know, they put together a meeting, people flew in uh, after the pandemic, and then somebody right in the middle of the meeting uh, gets up and leaves with the suitcase. Well, like, where are you going? <laughs> oh, I want to get home for dinner. Really? Really? Now, I, you know, <clears throat> I grew up, of course, in a, a time when we were still, you know, we were writing a lot of stuff with charcoal on the back of shovels, but, you know, I just can't imagine walking out on a skip level meeting with my boss's boss's boss right in the middle of it with my suitcase and saying, got to go. So that's the, those are the handful of people. And I, and I really don't think that it's a lot of people, but it's enough people to be noticeable because it has an impact and it makes everybody feel weird. And that's the way one of the, the uh, big company CEOs that I've been talking to characterized it a few months ago, which is that hybrid is weird. You know, when everybody was at home, everybody was in the same condition. And so he said it actually was more productive. And this, by the way, this is a global company that's very used to, to people working in teams, you know, across, you know, all kinds of different countries and time zones. And, you know, th this is just not new. Re remotely connecting within a team, within a company is not even, not even close to being new. But when it becomes the default, then you start to see things, you start to see activity and behavior at the, at the edges that is not been seen before. You know, skipping out on a conference call before there was video, sure, all kinds of people would do that or they multitask or something, but you didn't just blow something off. And the idea that you don't have to take some of this stuff as seriously or you can manufacture the excuse, well, you know, I might have tested positive for COVID. So, you know, I don't think it's safe for me to make the trip. I mean, it's just, it's the, I, I would say it, it's more than anything else. It's an unreliability that is more getting in the way of, of the company. Does that make sense? It does. I, I saw a post on LinkedIn yesterday that said the exact opposite, that I can build my company remote and I can be immensely successful. And it just made me pause and go, wow, that's really interesting viewpoint. Well, and I think that there, there are, to be very clear, there are, um, there, are, there are companies, there are businesses, and there are jobs that can all be done remotely. And that is a function first and foremost of the ability for that, let's start with a job, that person to have a work ethic. And most people do. I'm not talking about that. The second level of test of, of potential success in a virtual or hybrid world would be, is the person who is doing that work, are they being attended to from the perspective of the growth that they would have personally, the stuff that engages people, the difference between a job and a vocation, a job and a passion? And if you are one of those people who just wants to be an, an individual contributor and just kind of bang it out every day, and there are lots of people like that, there is nothing wrong with that. However, I think there's a significant difference between hybrid and work. So if you want to be, if, you're, if your primary focus is being hybrid, then your primary focus is work-life balance. 
I know this is incredibly politically incorrect, but on the other hand, I no longer work at a big company. So if you are really looking for a way to develop your passion, your uh, mission, your personal brand, I think you're in a world of trouble if you have to do it through hybrid because it, it's just not, it's just not, it, you know, it ain't normal. Okay. And then the third level of engagement that would make a company successful is that can we actually do what we do best as a hybrid organization? And that's another kind of cold water reality of let's look and see what it would be like, especially among competitors, if they were getting together with people or if they were collaborating better. And I think what we find when we start looking at a company that says it can be successful in a virtual or hybrid world is that a, a, great, a great amount of time, they seem to be trying to convince themselves that that's true because they're trying to accommodate the already the decisions that have already been made by a bunch of the employees that say, nah, we're not coming in. So trying to justify it or rationalize it is not the best way to drive a, a company business plan and a mission, my opinion, especially in a competitive space or a competitive market. Something else that happened this week that's really significant is the layoffs of Salesforce and Amazon. What does that tell you? Well, so I guess what you'd, you'd say is, uh, and, and, and I'm not uh, privy to any information about any of the companies that have announced uh, reductions in force. Uh, I do have a strong opinion about how you do it because my personal opinion, having participated in a number of reductions in force, layoffs, uh, rationalizations over the years, is that it is always the fault of the company. And the reason I say that, and I and I said it at the time when I was involved in it, is that at some level, we owe the employee an apology because we should have known better. And, and I'll spread that again, because again, terribly politically inappropriate at some level. And, you know, hey, easy for you to say, not so easy for me to say, because I've done it a bunch. And I've actually been on the receiving end as well. So, you know, I think I got the full circle. The challenge is that the company is going to, along the way, company management is going to make some kind of judgment that gets the people there to begin with. They got into a business, they got into a market, they had a role, they did something that thought that made them think it was worth the investment because it's a wicked big investment to take on people. It's a huge investment to take them on. It's a lot more than salary. It's it's all the other things, the benefits and the stuff that goes with it. It's it's a huge undertaking to bring on people and they don't do it lightly. So it's a mistake that they made if they miscalculated their market or you know something happened specific to a product and you could look at the history of of, of companies in all kinds of of industries and say they just they didn't get it right and in hindsight you can see it but at the time it's an awfully big assumption to think that the company should have known better so there's an apology that we didn't get it right there's an apology that's due that you know we're not able to sustain this it it doesn't <clears throat> at the end of the day, excuse me, it doesn't make sense for the company to stretch themselves and then get in more trouble by not dealing with the issue. But it is, it's sort of a, 
a, it's sort of a leadership moment where you say, this is what we got to do to keep the ship afloat. And we really wanted you on the ship and we think you're awesome, but we can't do it anymore. So my point is that the people who put on the most are going to be the most likely to take off the most. And, you know, those are two organizations that have grown with such enormous speed that it would be, I think, probably surprising if they weren't the first ones to go. That's a terribly long answer. I apologize. Let's get a bit deeper into the goblin thing theme. Uh, you have several complex issues that you're talking about with this theme that the CEO, CEO is going to have to deal with in 2023, 2023. One is out the goblin. What's that? So I think this is such an important issue is to first just declare, declare the existence of this thing that's out there. There are people that are just gaming it. And there is nothing wrong, in my opinion, about saying that. And but you don't have to say it like, okay, there's some people who are just dragging trow around here. You know, well, let's find those people and, and get them out of here. You say it in a positive way, which is that this company is going to grow. This company is going to continue to grow. This company has survived through the pandemic. We are still loved by all kinds of, of clients and we're grabbing market share. We are going to grow. That sets the stage to basically say that your company is all about growing and de facto, you are a bad fit for anybody who doesn't embrace the growth of themselves in that process. So positive way to say it, because, you know, not all these jobs that people have, like I said before, some jobs are just jobs, you know, and, you, and there is, I think there's an absolute uh, critical need to call the ball. There are some jobs that are just jobs. Not everybody wants to have profit sharing and and take the chance of the risk of the company's ups and downs. They just want to know that they're safe. And you ought to be able to know if you're safe every single day when you finish your work. You should know whether or not you're safe. It's outrageous to have it be otherwise. So let the people who just want to be safe be in a safe job and the people who have more passion for risk and you know the uh, promise of a new opportunity, give them a job that's different and recognize that. There's nothing wrong with that. Hybrid work is either hybrid or work. You touched on this a little earlier, but tell us more. So the hybrid work concept, as again, quoting that CEO of a, a major global uh, company, when he said hybrid is weird, it's because people are in, in sort of two different roles or two different locations is maybe a way to say it that if you are hybrid, you have probably chosen your work-life balance as the priority over your work. Again, that I'm not making a judgment about anybody. What I'm saying is that now that we've sort of burst the bubble, work from home is now a reality. The, the point, I think, though, is that there's got to be, there has to be much more guidance for the organization about what that means. And I think it's absolutely the uh, the voice of the CEO that says this, which is, okay, we've got jobs <laughs> that are jobs, and we have jobs that are hybrid jobs. In other words, there's stuff that we've done a lot of work on, and we see that there are some jobs that can be done mostly or completely virtual. And then we've got other jobs that we say, no, that's just not the way it is. Because it's not appropriate in a company, especially a larger company, 
to have a lot of vagary around, well, you know, can Sally have this job and she gets to work? That's the way they'd phrase it, by the way, other employees. She gets to work from home, but I have to be here because, because. And you and I have both seen over the years people who have been on maternity leave or had some personal needs or something else. Uh, we've all worked at companies where, you know, the single people had to come in on a Saturday, but the, you know, the married people with families didn't have to. I mean, that was always done at the local level or a single manager and it wasn't right. But, you know, there's all that history and most people know it. What you don't want to do is to be in a position where nobody knows. So you declare it. A lot of jobs that I see today that are being posted provide the clarity of virtual work. And so it really, unfortunately, it's an exercise that is back on the company and the company leadership to be much more clear about what existing roles, it's easy to do with new roles, what existing roles are hybrid and what are not. And I think that's really what the point is, is that the, the company needs to make hybrid truly hybrid and basically stop the madness of pretending that that all work and all workers are the same. They are not. Your third point, and I think this one's really important, is accountability. Where is it when you're working from the comforts of your home? And there you're not surrounded by people on the, in the same ship paddling in the same direction. It's hard to get all the rows together going in the same way. Yeah. And when I say accountability, it, you know, this is not beat down accountability. I, I, I still think that that is, is one of the most poisonous aspects of big companies is that managers who are not skilled use the, uh, use the sort of, of concept of accountability to get people to do stuff that, that doesn't always make sense to everybody. And that's just not right. What I'm talking about when I talk about accountability, I'm talking about joint accountability. So the CEO that's driving an organization that says we are jointly accountable to each other, that's really, really important. And so being able to link your job to the objectives of the company, I think is one of the most important roles that a CEO can have. So it's harder and harder and harder to do the bigger you are. But I think there's basically for me, there's there's four things inside of this accountability issue that that resonate based on my own experience of working on, I think, uh, you know, 12 or so corporate transitions uh, over the years. And the first is common experiences. You can't have joint accountability if you've got completely different experiences. And an awful lot of people who were hired in the pandemic, just they don't have the connection to the culture. They don't have connection to the systems, the working language. They don't have a frame of reference. They don't know how the company really operates. And a lot of people have said that when they get employees into, you know, whatever one of the big facilities or the headquarters of the company may be, they're really taken aback by the employees, the new employees' view of the way things are done in that headquarters. Not because it's weird, it's just new. So when you work in our industry, you have the additional challenge of an awful lot of employees hired in the last few years also just simply don't have any experience with market downturns, high interest rates, inflation. So when people who've been in the business for a long time and that are tied to market returns say, well, you know, this is just the cyclical nature of the, of the business and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. From whose perspective? Because if the you know, if the employee is not in their 
late 50s or 60s, they have no experience with high inflation. So how could that be an issue? Because they've never heard about it before. The third one for me would be performance. And performance is something that we talk about, but I've also noticed in this bull market period, you hear less and less about trying to achieve some of these metrics that, that everyone seems to talk about, but they haven't made more common knowledge. So how does the employee know that the company is doing well? And, you know, and, you know, so many finance people in particular say, well, that's ridiculous. How could they not look at the statements? How could they not be looking at our financial updates? How could they not be looking at the stock price? Hey, guess what? They don't. An awful lot of them just don't. And so if you can't, again, if you can't bring the company's performance linked to the day job of the people that you're hoping to hold on to or to grow, then that's a failing of management, not a failing of the employee. Don't put it on the employee to have to try to figure out how the company is doing. That's ridiculous. And of course, a lot of companies are awesome at this. And then the last one is, this is, is where I, I think I get the craziest, is when you start realizing that you've got stress in the income statement, you got to be strategic. And this is what, unfortunately, too many companies get themselves boxed in before they can make a move. You know, it's kind of like a portfolio. The portfolio is supposed to be stress tested in case the market goes down. Well, the company ought to be stress tested in case the, mar the company's business objectives and results go down. But again, an awful lot of companies don't do that. They default to marginal headcount reduction. They stick it on each manager go out and find the one person to get rid of or two people to get rid of, three people, and then just keep that in your back pocket for when we call you. That just doesn't make any goddamn sense. Instead of chipping away at the ability of each of your managers to accomplish what hopefully they were doing before all the, you know, whatever hit the fan, instead, be smart and strategic. Do not cut at the margin. Instead, identify a capability that you have, something that you do or some location that you've got that is not as optimal as the rest of the company. And think of your company as a portfolio of opportunities and businesses and people in contiguous ways, instead of doing this across the board, peanut butter spread, chipping away, which just is demeaning and demoralizing. And also you can't tell people when it's going to end. But if you exit a business and sell it to somebody, those people have a chance to go off and do something cool. And the buyer is going to put the energy into it, hopefully, to be able to turn it into something good. And I just don't think we think about it in that way. Think about it in terms of locations and businesses instead of across the board chipping away at people. That just hurts everybody. Your fourth point is um, make 2023 the year CEOs need to connect the dots. What are those dots? Yeah, so these are all the capabilities of a company. And, you know, uh, in next chapter in particular, we spend a lot of time with people from all different roles and walks of life inside of the financial services and, and retirement industry. And the constant observation that we have made over the past two and a half years is that CEOs are typically too often looking at the strategy of the company without the reality check of first, what do they already own? Do they really know how that stuff works? And then the second part is, 
are these things really connected? Because everything that you see in the financial services world, and I think increasingly in an information-based economy across all industries, says that these different component parts have got to work together. You know, you could use the companies that you talked about earlier, you know, and, and Amazon is an example of this. I mean, have you ever talked to anybody that works at Amazon? You know, do you call anybody? There is a system that they have there that allows that kind of customer service to still be seen as positive, even though nobody's talking to anybody live. And so how could that have happened without a violent approach, constant approach, violent focus on the connectivity of those systems? And if you don't know how those systems work, then you can't prioritize. I don't want to pile on to Southwest Airlines, but hold on a second. If you don't actually realize that any component, any critical component of your infrastructure, any of your enterprise software capabilities, if you don't realize that those things are either starting to get tired or obsolete or can't be connected or could create a catastrophic failure, I'm not really sure what you're doing because that's the only thing that matters. You, you told people you were going to get them from one place to another. What's underneath that, that value proposition, which is fantastically simple to the buyer, the consumer, the flyer, I just want to go from here to there. <clears throat> the complexity needed to actually put that in action is mind-boggling. The number of routes, pilots, blah, 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 all that stuff, it's impossible for anybody to really keep track of all that, but they have to because they made the promise. Otherwise, don't make the promise. And so I think one of the, the real challenges for CEOs, the ones that I see, the most successful ones are the ones that take the time to understand what they own and how it works because they are absolutely 100% accountable if it doesn't. You started to go there at the consumer. How does all of this connect to the consumer from the CEO's perspective? Well, you know, my phrase uh, that I've used for as long as I've been around, because I was able, fortunately, to start in my career by looking consumers, you know, clients of financial advice, look them right in the eye. <clears throat> and sometimes that eye had tears in it. Sometimes that eye had hostility in it. You know, <laughs> you pick your market time or your personal situation, you know, there's nothing more personal than your personal finances. So what I think is the case is that we we have as an as an industry we think we have the consumer's best interest in mind, but I don't believe that very many companies do what I call partnering with the consumer. Because if you're in a company and you were, let's say you're in a discussion with some other people and you're trying to allocate resources, it's very difficult to get those resources by saying you think this. And God forbid you use the phrase or the word I. I think we should do this. I think we should do that. If you're using that word a lot, you're already toast, in my opinion, from the perspective of being able to deliver to the consumer because the consumer is actually the most reliable ally that leadership can ever have. And I'm baffled that most companies 
when they say, oh, yeah, we're consumer driven. No, you're not. You know, a great friend of mine, the chief marketing officer of Fidelity, David Dintenfast, said this to me years ago. And it's one of the most memorable uh, lines I have ever heard from a senior leader. And he said that true customer centricity is an act of extreme humility. And I don't think most corporate leaders would register high on the humble meter, my personal opinion. So if you want to get the consumer engaged, I mean, you really have to actively, actively, consistently seek the information. It's not a couple of focus groups and a couple of surveys. And when we say partner with the consumer, it's really making them a partner. It's not a research object. So basically what you're trying to do is to make them real. You want to bring them in. You know, I, I reference Fidelity a lot because we learn some of this stuff the hard way, and that's always the best way, I guess. It's also the most inevitable way. So we got to know some very specific personas that we identified because we took very, very careful segmentation of our clientele. We looked to see where we were winning, looked to see where we were losing, and then we went in and got to know the people that were in that cohort. And we would use like age and assets and their proclivity to engage, investor personality. And we'd find the people and we'd put a name on them. And we got to know Sally in the branch organization, you know, for delivery. We got to know Harry as an active trader. We got to know Susie as sort of an emerging uh, millennial consumer person. Uh, and, you know, at the Alliance for Lifetime Income, where I do a bunch of stuff with, with uh, some great companies, we've got six personas that we think are the absolute best targets for protected income and, and protection generally. So I think you let those people do the selling for your organization, highlight them and say, so what would Jackie want in this moment in time? And how is the thing you're proposing and the, the budget spend that you want, how will that help Jackie? And if the company has the discipline to do that, it's impossible not to win with a consumer. There's a real opportunity for CEOs around this this year, isn't there? You know... Uh, the short answer is yes. We don't get these opportunities very often. I don't think this one is a flashpoint in time. I think it's a, a much broader trend, which is an amalgam of some things that have been brewing for a long time. You know, if you look back at the history of trends and, and you know, you're a, a, a smart and, and thoughtful person in all the years I've known you. And I, I think we benefit from looking at industries that have transitioned. I, I hate the phrase transformation. I think it's, you know, that's ludicrous. <clears throat> you can't transform anything. You can transition it. But when you think about what happened to the automobile industry over the years and how it's changed, if you think about how big box retail has changed, if you think about how media has changed, these are episodic journeys. These are not, you know, how are you doing in the first quarter? And then by the fourth quarter, let's fix it. You know, the transformation of Fidelity to be very consumer oriented in its retail business was a seven year mission. How many companies, how many CEOs, how many leadership teams can sign up for that? And, and you can't say, oh, well, you're a private company. So that's how you did it. Stop, stop. You know, if you really want to be a prisoner to quarterly returns, you know, knock yourself out, but you can build a really strong three, five, seven year plan and show that to the world. And if you're not making the grade along the way, then they will penalize you. But that's not the reason not to do it. So I just think information technology, the understanding and the use of data, 
you know, that's maybe maybe we're in the second inning of that. True automation in financial services, even the total use of the CRM across the book, you know, okay, maybe 50% of the clients are actually in the CRM in a meaningful way with an uh, engagement with somebody. That would be at best. I think there's, there is, we are not even halfway through the development of this cycle, whatever the cycle is. And I would worry less about trying to name the cycle than trying to figure out how my company was going to perform in it. Steve, a great way to come out of 2023 firing. Thanks for joining us. Hey, great to see you and hang out. And, you know, this is a, just just an interesting moment in time. So, you know, I think we go for it. All right. Please follow us for timely updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our producer, Julia Smolin, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen. <laughs>